from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. On this hour of Studio 360, we are digging up dirt and reveling in it. For instance, a few years ago, there was an exhibition in New York called Swept Away at the Museum of Arts and Design. Every work in the show was entirely made of dirt or dust or trash or pollution, schmutz. We asked Henry Alford to check it out, and he brought along a buddy, the biggest slob he knows. The show that we're about to see is dedicated to, quote, stuff we leave behind or deem unclean or strive to remove or discard or disguise or hide. Am I I making you nervous? No, no. This is like my apartment. This makes sense to me. That's Dave Hill. He's a writer and comedian who's been on HBO and Cinemax and This American Life. He lives in a pigsty. My apartment, yeah, is, uh, is, it's not like Oscar Madison gross. Actually, it's way worse than Oscar Madison. A while back, Dave had an infestation of moths. He bombed the apartment, but then didn't bother to clean up after the bombing. Worse, a few months later, he had a nasty surprise when he pulled out an oriental rug he'd stowed under his bed. The oriental rug was like sort of bubbling like its own ecosystem of like larvae and moths in various states of cocoonery or something. (laughs) And uh, I had to take a good hard look at myself after that. We went upstairs to the exhibition. The first piece we looked at was a Paul Hazelton sculpture in which the artist had smushed a dust-covered cleaning cloth into the shape of a human skull. It looks really like, uh, I feel like he had a real skull to work with. That's what frightens me about it. Oh, that he pressed the cleaning cloth against a real skull to get the shape right? Yeah, or had one like in the one hand and he was like, wait, I didn't get that weird nose thing that happens with skulls, right? Yeah, it is creepy. He he nailed it. Imagine if you just found this in your closet, only you didn't make it on purpose. You would have to move. Next, we looked at something called a soil map. So here's an eight foot by 10 foot plastic tray filled with 15 years worth of soil samples taken from all five boroughs of New York City. I was going to guess that's what this was. Dave was unfazed by the cubic yards of dirt before him. I guess it goes without saying everything's covered in urine. This is the theory that I came up with in my spare time. And then one night I met a guy, some sort of epidemiologist, like a public health person. So I said, tell me if I'm right, is everything covered in semen and feces? And he said, yeah, basically. So I said, good, this is what I've been saying Since, you know, the 80s, no one is safe. You can't run from it, basically. Wow. Uh, I want to rinse. I need need to ablute. No, you can't. What's that mean? 
Ablutions. I need to make my ablutions. Ablutions? Is that French? How do you spell that? We looked at a series of wooden sculptures of crows, all of which had been burned to charcoal. What's interesting is, A, it smells, right? You can smell the fires. And some of the charcoal's gotten up on the walls and it's smeared. Yeah. This might be my favorite. Did I... I set my apartment on fire recently. I don't cook that often. But when I do, I really hit it out of the park. When we stood in front of a quilt made from dryer lint, Hill got to talking about how it's sometimes easier just to buy new underwear rather than wash an old pair, but that sometimes in his haste, he absentmindedly buys underwear that's not the right size. I wear the underwear that's too big, and it grates at me, and that's what's going on with me right now. And can't, but can't you just cinch up the waistband? You try. You can cinch all day, but it's never going to solve the problem. I mean, look at it. It's a mess. As you can see. Yeah, that's right. There are little pictures of crabs on the underwear. That kind of sends a message. Yeah, yeah. Know who you're dealing with. Toward the end of the exhibition, Dave started to reflect on what he'd learned from the show. I realized a few things. Is that there's beauty in the most unexpected things if you just push it together into a cool shape eventually. Do you think this exhibition will make non-messy people warm up to messy people? What I hope that it does, aside from make for some great first dates, is makes wakes people up to the fact that we're all messy people. Literally messy, emotionally messy, spiritually messy. Psychotically yeah. messy. And covered in semen and feces. On the way out, we stopped to look at one more thing, a work by an Italian artist named Antonio Riello. He'd incinerated his favorite books and then put the ashes in hand-blown glass decanters and beakers. The burned books made us a little uncomfortable, but the hand-blown glass was beautiful. He does a lot of fancy reading. Some of these are in other languages. Also, um, they misspelled Walt Whitman. Oh, it says Walt Whitman. Talk about sloviness. Ugh, nothing drives me crazier than typos. Improper punctuation, things like that. I don't always speak eloquently, but my spelling is impeccable. That was the comedian Dave Hill, along with the author Henry Alford. Swept Away was at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York in 2012. Dave Hill is now on his world stand-up tour, and Henry Alford's new book is called And Then We Danced. Almost every parent is familiar with one particular piece of modern design. But the design critic Philip Noble has gone much further, really scrutinizing and appreciating the very complex design of disposable diapers. You open up this pack of diapers and out comes this incredibly complex, articulated piece of clothing. You know, the only modern analog for us is the spacesuit. 
it's got you know contours and features and closures and there's no garment i can think of except the spacesuit that is close to complexity of the uh, the contemporary disposable diaper They come folded and they're worn cupped, so you never see them flat. But if you if you pull them out flat, they're remarkably beautiful objects <laughs> on their own. It's hard to list the features in a way because they're so. Um, some of them are, are just you know very subtle material changes that allow the fabric to to bunch in a, in a way where where these very enlightened designers at, at uh, the Huggies Central have decided that you know fabric needs to bunch but the you know the kind of gross features of the thing are these these amazing baby proof velcro patches that come around the sides and and allow for repositioning for the inexperienced parent and also for for ease of uh, of access you know I'll say no more about access there's a kind of a of a liner that must have some wicking function and behind that liner there's some mystery gel that it took me a few uh a few changes to realize it absorbs so much moisture that it just thickens when it's wet. I shudder to think what is in this gel <laughs> because it's so it, it's doing what it does with such single-minded vigor. There's there's this whole system of gussets. They're these tiny little elastic threads that are this raised kind of plastic ruffle and uh it has a kind of Japanese simplicity. It's made of a piece of paper wrapped around these two elastic threads, which are, I guess are pre-tensioned so that when the paper is folded over them and then they're released, they, they form the ruffle. The triumph of the diaper is that all of these, there's a kind of organicism to these um, features, and they all come together into this one thing, which still at a distance matches that uh, kind of cartoon view of the diaper, you know, fluffy white thing. It's only when you get close enough to see its complexity that you realize that something, uh, if not sinister, then at least very curious is going on, you know, on, on the, uh, the bottoms of America's babies. That was the architect and critic Philip Noble. Coming up... When a smutty book gets so popular that a reporter learns even her mother is a reader. Well, I didn't know that it was perverted and weird and sex trash when, when I picked it up. All I heard was number one on the bestseller list. How the BDSM novel Fifty Shades of Grey became the biggest bestseller of the 21st century. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, or Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. Studio 360. On today's Studio 360, we are looking at smut in all its forms. Whimsical and mundane, literal and figurative. When booksellers and publishers convened in New York City for their annual Book Expo America in 2012, there was a lot of talk about ebooks, social media, self-publishing, and this strange old-fashioned phenomenon. A printed and bound giant blockbuster that had appeared from out of nowhere. As you probably know, Fifty Shades of Grey tells the story of a young woman and the handsome zillionaire she likes to ravish her. 
The author, E.L. James, first self-published her novel as fan fiction based on the Twilight series. All the vampire and werewolf stuff was deleted, and Vintage Books published it in 2012. And voila, the Fifty Shades trilogy soon occupied all the top spots on the New York Times fiction bestseller list for months and months. And already at that first book expo, it seemed like all anybody could talk about. If you go around to all the booths, everyone has their erotica books featured now. Did you notice that? (laughs) Yes. You know, most publishers now have an erotic fiction line and are hoping to somehow discover what it is, the the magic. We're buying a lot more erotica now, yes. And we're seeing that customers are buying it as well. She's made it, you know, erotic fiction socially acceptable. We have a a BDSM novel uh, just about to come out, which is what Fifty Shades of Grey is, you know, bondage, sadomasochism. We're reissuing these three, reissuing and repackaging three of Anne Rice's old novels that she wrote, I think, in, like, 1983. They're supposed to be pretty crazy erotica. (laughs) As an agent, I've received at least six proposals by clients and non-clients about doing a Fifty Shades of Grey type book. I think the challenge of doing these types of books is to get them out first. Within the next season or two, we'll see all the books that are derivative of the, of the mothership, so to speak. The old days, the tried and true way of going through the agent, going through the whole process with every single publisher still exists, obviously, but now there are ways for people to get their books published. At St. Martin's Press, we have published a couple of authors who started with just online chapters. What we've seen is once the print books actually hit the market, that both the print books and the digital books have been creating demand for each other. It's made ebooks for mommy porn a lot more of a viable option because mommies can read it whenever and nobody knows what they're reading. So you don't have the cover of the book that shows a bodice ripper that's really embarrassing to read. You can read it and nobody knows what you're reading and then you go home and have a good time with your husband. Those were people attending Book Expo America in 2012. Our story was produced by Eric Malinsky. So who were all those millions of people reading Fifty Shades of Grey? We dispatched Rebecca Lee Douglas to find out, and she wound up hearing things that she can't unhear. And this should go without saying, but our story includes some explicit sexual content. Like the sign says, the Strand Bookstore in downtown Manhattan has 18 miles of new, used, and rare books, so it can be hard to pick a title from that crowd. But the Fifty Shades trilogy is not hard to find. It's right in the center of the bestsellers table, saves customers the trouble of asking for it, though some still do. They fall into two categories. Uh, one is the complete gleeful like ownership of it, like, where's the dirty book? I want the dirty book. This is Liz Devoten, a manager at The Strand. The second category of people is maybe this is their first time buying erotica and it's from a store. Um, so there's a little bit more, I guess, maybe coyness about it. Like, I don't know about this book. I sort of heard about it. Fifty Shades of something. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it's sort of adorable. It's like, yes, you know, we have it right here. It's very popular. Staffers at The Strand are excited about the book, not just because it's kinky or because it's selling a lot. Kate Garber works on the staff picks here. She says Fifty Shades of Grey has created a silent but really useful conversation between the store and its customers. Like if someone knows that a staff member is 
recommending this book and saying, come on, it's okay if you think this is sexy. People will buy it and they love it. They might very well buy it, love it, and then head down to Soho to Babeland, a woman-owned sex toy shop. Sales have been going up at Babeland since Fifty Shades of Grey hit the bestseller list. Conversations about the erotic are a lot more frank here, of course. We have a big metal rack that has all of our restraints, blindfolds, floggers, paddles, and other assorted um, sensation toys. Babeland co-founder Claire Cavanaugh is showing me the BDSM section. That stands for bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism. Cavanaugh says they can't keep BDSM stuff on the shelves now. It's looking a little sparse, I'm telling you, because so many people are buying things, you know, so quickly it's hard to keep things in stock. The stores started workshops on how to use the implements described in Fifty Shades. And the classes are so popular, they've filled up over a month in advance. And this you would definitely find in the dungeon in that book. These are floggers. This is a, um, a leather, it's a very long one, it's like soft leather on the inside. Kavanaugh goes on showing me Babeland's toys, sometimes using words like sex positive. It feels like college here. But I'd heard that the main customers driving the sales of Fifty Shades are middle-aged women. I needed to find someone older I could talk to about this book. But how? Hello, Nancy speaking. Hi, Mom. This is your daughter, Rebecca. Oh, hi, Rebecca. I am calling because the other day I talked to you about people who you knew who were reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, yeah, the sex trash book. Right. Yes. Let me pause here to say that I had no idea that my mom had read this book. My mom, who's 53 and usually reads historical fiction. What you're about to hear is the most uncomfortable conversation I have ever had with her. Well, I didn't know that it was perverted and weird and sex trash when, when I picked it up. I mean, all I heard was number one on the bestseller list. So I picked it up and then, you know, within like the second chapter, you just, you just see the, the kinky weirdness of it. It's actually the seventh chapter, but that's when protagonist Christian Grey brings young Anastasia to his red room of pain to show her all of his devices for flagellating and penetrating. Did you tell Dad about the book? No! No, I hope he doesn't know it. <laughs> did, did, you, did you enjoy reading it? Was it, like, a fun read for you? Well, it, you know, I mean, it was kind of interesting. I did learn a lot of things I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, like, what did you learn? Um, I mean, I mean, there were all sorts of, you know, devices and things I knew nothing about before, so. Okay, what are know. the devices that you know about now? Oh my gosh, well, like the butt plugs. I mean, <laughs> these things I had no idea were out there. I think I'll avoid, but. Uh... Yeah, we kept discussing the book, but I was dying inside. Interviewing total strangers at bookstores and sex toy shops is fine, but my mom and I have barely ever talked about sex. I thought it was because she was the prude. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mom. Okay, honey. Love you. Bye. That story was produced by Rebecca Lee Douglas. You know what I'd be interested in seeing? 
a parody of Fifty Shades of Grey written and directed by John Waters. He, of course, has been the campy, good-natured master of filthy cinema since 1972 when he released his truly shocking comedy, Pink Flamingos. Oh, my God almighty! Someone has sent me a bell! What was that? A turd! By the late 1980s and 1990s, the mainstream was flowing more in his direction and vice versa, and he was making studio movies like Serial Mom. I hate Mrs. Ackerman. I hate her too. You know, somebody ought to kill her. Yeah. For the sake of this planet, somebody just might. And his old movie Hairspray then became a huge hit Broadway musical which was then readapted for the screen by Disney. For 25 years, John Waters has also been creating art based on still photographs, an exhibit of which was shown at the New Museum in New York in the early 2000s. When he dropped by Studio 360 back then, I asked him if there was a moment in his childhood when he first knew that he wanted to make movies. Well, I think I was an outsider first. I didn't have much choice about that. I remember, uh, you know how kids sit at the top of the steps and listen to their parents talk, and I heard my mother say, he's just an odd duck. And I thought, oh, that's it. Okay, great. Now I know, you know, that's my job in life, to be an odd duck. So I tried to fulfill that. That wasn't a horrible moment when you heard your mother say that? No, not at all. I was glad she recognized it because I never was interested in what the other kids were interested in, but it didn't bother me really. I mean, I wasn't hassled in school, really, because they thought I was nuts. If they think you're nuts, it's a great protection in a way. Because they, they were scared of you a little bit? A little bit scared. And if you can make them laugh. You see, I was always against authority, though. So the bullies didn't want to beat me up because I could say rude things. <laughs> and were you a big watcher of television and a, and, a, and a patron of the movie theater? Did you soak in that media culture? Very much so. I was on the Howdy Doody show. And personally saw Clarabella person, which I've never gotten over. The psychotic clown squirting people with seltzer water and Flub-a-Dub's great fashion sense. I I never got over Howdy Doody. I'm here today because of the Howdy Doody show. So I may have seen you as a little boy watching Howdy Doody from Omaha. I may have seen you in the audience. You might have. And and did, was that really – that must have been an exciting moment to see real national television being made for you. I, I think to many of the kids it was very much of a disillusionment because you came in and you saw there was this tiny little stage. There were four Howdy Doody puppets. Uh, it was a complete – completely fake, but that was a great uh, – great wonderful thing to me that I realized it's all a lie and I want to be involved in this. I want to be in this magic trick. This is sort of what I want to do forever. So I became a puppeteer for children's birthday parties and had quite a career when I was 12 years old. What were your puppet characters like? Well, um, they were Punch and Judy because I could have violence and, and, and a Cinderella. I had the two things, but at the end I would come out with, a, it was hand puppets, not uh, string puppets, and I would come out with the dragon puppet and say, which is violating all puppeteers that come out beyond the stage when the kids see you. And I'd say that if the puppet bit your hand, you'd have good luck. Well, a third of the kids would start crying and flipping out, and the other ones loved it. And that's still what I do. So you were sort of a, a postmodern puppeteer of some Well, kind. I certainly wouldn't have used those words at the time. <laughs> yeah, I would, tried to have some showmanship in my shows. I was. <laughs> a lot of the characters in your films are 
from variously fringy corners of society, despised and otherwise. But again and again, even in your earliest movies, you sort of get audiences to love them despite their outsider status. In Pink Flamingos, I think of you make you make this hero out of a 350-pound transvestite. Um, in fact, let's listen to Divine from that film um, vowing to be the filthiest person alive, which is one of her ambitions. Happy birthday, fatso! <laughs> you are no longer the filthiest person alive. Oh. We are. Inside, oh. the filthiest people alive. Oh, just as I thought. And a deliberate attempt to seize my title. These are obviously jealous people. Jealous of our careers, of all of our press. Why else would they sign that the filthiest people alive? Everyone knows that that title has become my trademark. Why to use it in this way is only to insinuate that they are filthier than I. How could anyone seriously believe that? How could anyone be filthier than Divine? <laughs> Again, that was the late Divine. What was lovable about that character? Well, this Pink Flamingos was certainly made at the end of the hippie years, and it was the it was made in the year Deep Throat came out. It was in the year that pornography became legal. So we tried to think what, in a way, could be a humorous movie that could shock hippies that thought they had seen everything, because that was my midnight audience, certainly. So um, it wasn't illegal, the things that we had. The ending of Pink Flamingos, the most notorious thing where Divine Eats Dog do. But it enraged people because there wasn't a law against it yet. There may be today because of that movie. So um, we were trying to get people to laugh at their ability to still be shocked by anything in 1972. And, and of course, the ability to be shocked, which art for at least 100 years, probably more, has been one of its driving forces. That's pretty hard to shock people in 2004, is it not? Well, I don't try to shock people. I try to make people laugh. I'm shocked every time I go to a bad movie about how sentimental it is or how stupid it is or how obvious it is or how it's been written by 20 writers as if a computer and producers wrote it. I'm shocked all the time at the movies, but not in a good way. As your characters, your film characters, became over time, as one looks back, less outrageous, less about uh, giant transvestites eating dog do. Can I, can I say a little something? You talked about serial marmalade movie. That's where I asked the audience to root for a serial killer. So I'm not completely sure. My last movie was Cecil B. Demented about film terrorists. And my new one's about sex addicts. So I'm not so sure I'm doing anything different. I think the public has changed. And, I mean, and, I never tried to top Pink Flamingos. I, I knew that I won the imperial margarine crown of filth. And the only person <laughs> that successfully challenged me was Johnny Knoxville. And he did it wonderfully. And he's the star of my new movie. He he did uh, Jackass on yes. MTV. And so you were a big fan of that program? Very much so, yes. Its grossness and its greatness will never be forgotten. Was the film Hairspray a, a turning point for you? Because it was... Certainly, oh, yes. by comparison to your movies, pretty warm and fuzzy. Yeah, I remember I got the PG rating. I hung my head in shame and thought I'd never work again. I didn't try to do that. I was amazed because at the time, it's hard to think of it now, but I was nervous. He was a white man making a satire about civil rights. Um, that's not politically correct. And but this chubby girl who certainly is an outsider and yes. is embraced by 1960 Baltimore society. Yeah, but it was also pro-black um, and white couples in teenage years, a black guy and a and a, a white girl. I mean, there were things that now nobody thinks about, but then I didn't know. I didn't try to make a family thing. It did. And, and, and that was the perverseness of it, that families were watching Divine now and, and not caring that it was a man dressed as a woman and a woman that no drag queen would ever allow himself to look like. 
You have, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, an exhibit of your work opening at the new museum, a, a further embrace of by the establishment of John Waters. Tell me about the show. Well, it's uh, called Change of Life, which was uh, Marvin Heiferman, the curator's uh, great title, I think, since I've I've been involved in the art world for always as a collector, but certainly um, for the last, since about 1990, started taking these pictures off the TV screen for myself about stills, to create stills from movies that there was no such still. It went from that to taking images from different movies and putting them like in storyboards into a new narrative to tell a new movie with other people's images, which is what I'm doing. Anybody can take pictures off the TV screen, but this really is about editing and writing and humor, certainly putting it together. So that's how it all began. But they're also, um, from the look of the work, which I've only seen in the catalog, are really beautiful you know, montages. That, Thank you. Um, I, and I mean, one expects a lot from John Waters's work, but not necessarily beauty in some re- conventional sense. Well, beauty is a word that, you know, I did a piece called Julia, that it's a shot of Julia Roberts and a shot of Mr. Sardonicus, you know, with a strange mouth. And I, I got the idea because I read in an interview with Julia Roberts, she said, I, I look at a picture of myself. I don't think I'm beautiful. It looks like I have a coat hanger in my mouth. And if you look at a picture, Julia Roberts would not have been thought of as beautiful in the 20s or 30s. And you look at a picture of Greta Garbo today, kids don't understand why people thought she was beautiful. What is beautiful always changes. I thought Divine was beautiful. I thought Divine, beauty to me is confidence and having confidence in style. You can be ugly and be beautiful. Certainly, it's about how you pull it off. You just have to exaggerate your shortcomings and it can become a style. You have to believe in yourself. If you think you're sexy, somebody else will. Your exhibit at the New Museum also includes films of yours that have really never been seen. Well, because they're, they're being shown in an art context, kind of like it's video art in a room. These are the earliest films I made that have only been shown once in a beatnik coffee house in Baltimore or in a church basement, which where we went so the censors wouldn't come to us. Now, you can look at these films today. They would never be censored. But certainly you can see, I lived in my parents' house. They were filmed to my bedroom. Divine is in them. Uh, Mary Vivian Pierce, Mink Stoll, when we were teenagers. Um, But you can see that some of the very ideas that I still use today were in these films. Um, The Catholicism stuff, the the borrowing, the appropriation of other images. It's always been something that I have used. Um, In one of them, Eat Your Makeup, we have the whole Kennedy assassination where Divine plays Jackie, the reenactment, and it was two years after it really happened. So people really didn't think it was funny, and they called this one festival called the, um, not even the police, they went worse, they called the Internal Revenue, so I couldn't charge admission in the church. That's a new kind of censorship, isn't it? That's, and, and that's it, ruder than calling the police. Uh, very interestingly effectual kind of censorship. Yes, it was. We passed the basket, though. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting to think about how, in cultural terms, it seems as though in the last 40 years has been a march of the gay sensibility into the mainstream. Uh which I guess has been a good thing for you to the degree that your work has been an expression of a kind of perverse gay sensibility? Yeah, but I think I'm gaily incorrect. And I always said I was gay. Nobody made a big deal of it because they were afraid that the answer to my sexuality was somehow worse than gay. So the press <laughs> steered away from that because they were always afraid of the answer. That, though, well, in their minds, who knows? They thought me I was a necrophilia. God knows what they thought. You know, I can't. I'm sorry to disappoint. I'm not. But... Um, 
certainly to me, gay is not enough either. There, I think progress is admitting there's bad gay films too. Um, but certainly at the same time, the gay audience has been there from the very beginning. But my gay audience doesn't like gay culture. They make fun of it. So um, I, my audience from the beginning were the gay outsiders that didn't fit in the gay culture. So double outsiders yeah. in a sense. It's interesting in all that we're talking about today how so often what is outside in our culture, maybe in all cultures, becomes sort of eventually embraced by the the, the mainstream. And you think of a, a, a category that is so widely used uh, as a piece of nomenclature today, alternative – you know, it's 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 sort of turning the outsider into this permanent establishment category as a way to sell stuff. Well, it already is. I mean, when I started out, we used the negative reviews for my films and the ad campaigns. Pink Flamingos, the entire campaign was negative reviews. But it was the kind of negative reviews no critic would write today because all critics are hip. None of them would say, this is disgusting, this should be censored, that kind of thing. That's impossible today to do that because um, then it was us versus them and there was a cultural war. We won, and all the people that were th- th- us, them, are now them, the critics. So um, it, it, you can't do that anymore. No one's going to rise to that bait. I, I wonder if it's if it's the same, the way that the, the outsiders become the academy that happened 130 years ago with the Impressionists, that suddenly they were the, they were the outsiders, and 30 years later they were... Th- Running the show, of course, it's always like that, you know. And then, and then the new kids that come along that think of things to offend the people, the generation before them that just had success. That's the new thing. That's youth's duty to offend the generation before them, just when they feel comfortable that they've changed things. John Waters, thanks a lot for joining me today in Studio Three Hundred and Sixty. Thanks for having me. I spoke with John Waters in two thousand four. Another exhibit devoted to his art and movies will be on display in his hometown at the Baltimore Museum of Art this fall. You can find out more about that at studio360.org. By the way, if you don't already subscribe to our podcast, do because there, and at least for now only there, you can hear the showrunner of the great TV series Luke Cage Cheo Hodari Coker breaking down how and why he made the score for his second season. As soon as you hear this click, don't, don't click, don't, don't, don't click, don't, Everything has a rhythm to it. Immediately, hardcore hip-hop fans are saying, oh man, it's Mob Deep, it's about to get real. In one sequence, we're kind of Saying to the audience, we're back. We're also saying to the audience that this is a show that believes in authentic hip-hop. But at the same time, we're establishing, you know, a a different loop. We're establishing a loop that has embraced his power and a a loop that has a certain swagger to him that is superhero-like. That's on the Studio 360 podcast, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a band that's got nothing to do with sex or schmutz, but whose name is spot on for today's theme, Dirty Projectors. They perform live next on Studio 360. 
Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com. Studio 360. This hour on Studio 360, we are talking about dirtiness in all senses. The rock band Dirty Projectors manages to be both avant-garde and accessible. Arty music you can dance to in the tradition of talking heads. Dirty Projectors have collaborated with Bjork and have been covered by Solange. I spoke with them in 2012 when they released their album Swing Low Magellan. I asked the band's main guy, David Longstreth, if they'd play a song before we talked. We will. And what's it going to be? Yeah, it's called Just From Chevron. Excellent. Where she collapses into the shore Pump her like product and ask her for more Don't think I won't try when I 
That was Dirty Projectors performing Just From Chevron from their new album, Swing Low Magellan. Dave Longstreth, will you introduce these three people singing beautifully with you? Sure. It's Amber Kaufman to my right, uh, Haley Deagle just in front of me, and uh, sitting in with us this week, uh, Jen Wozner from Y Oak. Hello. The songs like that one that you write are, are musically, uh, in addition to lyrically complex, more complex musically than... Uh, most rock songs. Uh, does that come out of having studied orchestration and harmonic theory and so forth at Yale? I I don't really, I don't know. I mean, I did that stuff, but I think I did that stuff just because uh, I'm I'm curious about uh, sounds. I'm curious about music. Uh, curious about you know songwriting, putting things together. Well, one way that you've Put things together on your last record, Bitta Orca. You you had the band watch the movie Wings of Desire and then write lyrics in response to to that film. Did you do anything like that for this new record? This album was uh, it's different. It's more uh, it's a little bit more internal, um, and it comes a little bit more out of uh, I guess experience. I guess you could say that Bitta Orca. It's like um, the things that we as a band were really interested in were uh, were kind of like surfaces and textures and colors and, uh, you know, explicitly musical things. Lyrics came kind of secondarily, and they're a little bit more at the, at the heart of the new record. So I guess I didn't really play games quite like that this time around. As a kid, what kind of music did you listen to in the 80s, 90s, growing up that... that sort of formed you musically Mm. well you know there was my parents record collection they like you know they graduated college in 1970 so they have all that all that stuff that Uh, would be the beatles the rolling stones the yeah yeah yeah, all that stuff and then um my i have a older brother uh, who's about five years older than me who got super into just like you know punk punk music and so uh yeah, I mean, you know, all kinds of music, um, whether it's the weird, you know, kaleidoscopic orchestrations of, like, Ligeti in the 60s, or whether it's, like, you know, Greg Ginn's approach to the guitar. 
in the late 70s or um, Stravinsky's way of orchestrating winds or like, you know, uh, Jeff Emmerich's approach to miking the drum kit. There, yeah, there's ever, ever, there's a world of amazing, amazing music and sounds. I've read that you you read uh, uh, when you were young uh, this book of of that just minutely deconstructs Beatles songwriting, Revolution in the Head, and then that was a big deal for you. Yeah, how so? Um, well, I was really into like four track recording at the time, and uh, it just blew my mind that uh, that the, a lot of those Beatles records were made on four tracks, albeit you know very different four tracks and with different mics and all that stuff. But it just gave me the sense that like oh like we can do something like this. My brother and I are just like sitting in our in our bedroom, like um, you mean if they can make Sergeant Peppers with this relatively primitive technology, we can do anything. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, how old were you when that that eureka moment happened? Probably thirteen or fourteen. And at thirteen, with your brother, what on your machine in your bedroom? What what kind of music were you making? That's pretty similar to the stuff that uh, we do now in Dirty Projectors. Uh, it's just voices and guitars and drums. And you've collaborated, as I mentioned, with Bjork. You've collaborated with David Byrne. Uh, how how did those come about? And and do you have like a a, a checklist of oh, I want to get to this uh, person and this person and work with them as well? No, no, I don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely David Byrne and Bjork were like big heroes of of mine. And the new album is very is very uh, kind of insular in the way that it's just me and it's the band. Those things were, um, you know, they were amazing and really, really fulfilling. And we, yeah, we learned so much from working with those people because they're just masters of their craft and and kind of great people as well. Uh, but no, there's no there's no master plan to uh, <laughs> seek out. <laughs> Sir Paul McCartney will be next. Or? Lil Wayne, Lindsey Buckingham. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Lil Wayne. <laughs> well, Dave Longstreth and Dirty Projectors, I want to thank you for coming. And will you play us? Out with another song? Sure, yeah. Let's play a song called Impregnable Question. Excellent. If there is ever the impregnable question of why, what did or didn't pass, it would help to see. Okay. 
share it all We are both too tall What is mine is yours And happiness and in strife You are my love And I want you in my life You are my love And I want you in my life You are my love And I want you in my life That's Dirty Projectors playing Impregnable Question from their album Swing Low Magellan. Their new album, Lamp Lit Prose, will be out on July 13th. And that's it for this week's show. Before we go, I just wanted to remind you to follow the show on Twitter, or you can also tell us what you think of Studio 360. A listener called Fiasco Frey just did that, concerning our recent story with music producer Tony Visconti. Thank you so much at Studio 360 Show for sharing the process behind the David Bowie montage. I'm standing in Trader Joe's sobbing, but it was worth it. Hashtag Starman Forever. And Colleen Seidel liked our episode on the Vietnam Memorial. She tweeted, Excellent podcast about memorializing a war we still don't know how to remember. A must listen if you're at all interested in American history, public art, politics, or the cultural remnants of war. Thank you, Fiasco and Colleen. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. This week's show was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chubb. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I am Kurt Anderson. I don't always speak eloquently, but my spelling is impeccable. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, American icons are not just history lessons. They are right now. If you want to understand this country and its people and what it means to be optimistic and complex and tragic and wrong and courageous, you need to go to Monticello. Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. That's next time in Studio 360's American Icons from Public Radio International in association with Slate.